This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book One, Chapter Three, Part Twelve. All the various dangers by which the traveller was beset were greatly increased by darkness. He was, therefore, commonly desirous of having the shelter of a roof during the night, and such shelter it was not difficult to obtain. From a very early period the inns of England had been renowned. Our first great poet had described the excellent accommodation which they afforded to the pilgrims of the fourteenth century. Nine and twenty persons, with their horses, found room in the wide chambers and stables of the tabard in Southwark. The food was of the best, and the wines such as drew the company on to drink largely. Two hundred years later, under the reign of Elizabeth, William Harrison gave a lively description of the plenty and comfort of the great hostelries. The continent of Europe, he said, could show nothing like them. There were some in which two or three hundred people, with their horses, could, without difficulty, be lodged and fed. The bedding, the tapestry, above all, the abundance of clean and fine linen, was matter of wonder. Valuable plate was often set on the tables. Nay, there were signs which had cost thirty or forty pounds. In the seventeenth century England abounded with excellent inns of every rank. The traveller sometimes in a small village lighted on a public house such as Walton has described, where the brick floor was swept clean where the walls were stuck round with ballads, where the sheets smelt of lavender, and where a blazing fire, a cup of good ale, a dish of trouts fresh from the neighbouring brook, were to be procured at small charge. At the larger houses of entertainment were to be found beds hung with silk, choice cookery, and claret equal to the best which was drunk in London. The innkeepers, too, it was said, were not like other innkeepers. On the continent, the landlord was the tyrant of those who crossed the threshold. In England he was a servant. Never was an Englishman more at home than when he took his ease in his inn. Even men of fortune, who might in their own mansions have enjoyed every luxury, were often in the habit of passing their evenings in the parlour of some neighbouring house of public entertainment. They seem to have thought that comfort and freedom could in no other place be enjoyed with equal perfection. This feeling continued, during many generations, to be a national peculiarity. The liberty and jollity of inns long furnished matter to our novelists and dramatists. Johnson declared that a tavern chair was the throne of human felicity, and Shenston gently complained that no private roof, however friendly, gave the wanderer a warmer welcome as that which was to be found at an inn. Many conveniences which were unknown at Hampton Court and Whitehall in the seventeenth century are in all modern hotels. Yet on the whole it is certain that the improvement of our houses of public entertainment has by no means kept pace with the improvement of our roads and of our conveyances. Nor is this strange for it is evident that all other circumstances being supposed equal, the inns will be best where the means of locomotion are worst. 
the quicker the rate of travelling, the less important is it that there should be numerous agreeable resting-places for the traveller. A hundred and sixty years ago, a person who came up to the capital from a remote county generally required by the way twelve or fifteen meals and lodging for five or six nights. If he were a great man, he expected the meals and lodging to be comfortable and even luxurious. At present we fly from York or Exeter to London by the light of a single winter's day. At present, therefore, a traveller seldom interrupts his journey merely for the sake of rest and refreshment. The consequence is that hundreds of excellent inns have fallen into utter decay. In a short time no good houses of that description will be found, except at places where strangers are likely to be detained by business or pleasure. The mode in which correspondence was carried on between distant places may excite the scorn of the present generation. Yet it was such as might have moved the admiration and envy of the polished nations of antiquity, or of the contemporaries of Raleigh and Cecil. A rude and imperfect establishment of posts for the conveyance of letters had been set up by Charles I, and had been swept away by the Civil War. Under the Commonwealth the design was resumed. At the Restoration the proceeds of the post office, after all expenses had been paid, were settled on the Duke of York. On most lines of road the mails went out and came in only on the alternate days. In Cornwall, in the fens of Lincolnshire, and among the hills and lakes of Cumberland, letters were received only once a week. During a royal progress a daily post was dispatched from the capital to the place where the courts adjourned. There was also daily communication between London and the Downs, and the same privilege was sometimes extended to Tunbridge Wells and Bath at the seasons when those places were crowded by the great. The bags were carried on horseback day and night at the rate of about five miles an hour. The revenue of this establishment was not derived solely from the charge for the transmission of letters. The post office alone was entitled to furnish post-horses, and from the care with which this monopoly was guarded we may infer that it was found profitable. If indeed a traveller had waited half an hour without being supplied, he might hire a horse wherever he could. To facilitate correspondence between one part of London and another was not originally one of the objects of the post office, but, in the reign of Charles II, an enterprising citizen of London, William Dockray, set up at great expense a penny post, which delivered letters and parcels six or eight times a day in the busy and crowded streets near the exchange, and four times a day in the outskirts of the capital. This improvement was, as usual, strenuously resisted. The porters complained that their interests were attacked, and tore down the placards in which the scheme was announced to the public. The excitement caused by Godfrey's death, and by the discovery of Coleman's papers, was then at the height. A cry was therefore raised that the penny post was a popish contrivance. The great Dr. Oates, it was affirmed, had hinted a suspicion that the Jesuits were at the bottom of the scheme, and that the bags, if examined, would be found full of treason. The utility of the enterprise was, however, so great and obvious that all opposition proved fruitless. As soon as it became clear that the speculation would be lucrative, the Duke of York complained of it as an infraction of his monopoly, 
and the courts of law decided in his favour. The revenue of the post office was from the first constantly increasing. In the year of the Restoration, a committee of the House of Commons, after strict inquiry, had estimated the net receipt at about £20,000. At the close of the reign of Charles the Second, the net receipt was little short of £50,000, and this was then thought a stupendous sum. The gross receipt was about £70,000. The charge for conveying a single letter was twopence for eighty miles, and threepence for a longer distance. The postage increased in proportion to the weight of the packet. At present, a single letter is carried to the extremity of Scotland, or of Ireland, for a penny, and the monopoly of post-horses has long ceased to exist. Yet the gross annual receipts of the department amount to more than eighteen hundred thousand pounds, and the net receipts to more than seven hundred thousand pounds. It is, therefore, scarcely possible to doubt that the number of letters now conveyed by mail is seventy times the number which was so conveyed at the time of the accession of James the Second. No part of the load which the old mails carried out was more important than the news letters. In 1685, nothing like the London daily paper of our time existed, or could exist. Neither the necessary capital nor the necessary skill was to be found. Freedom, too, was wanting, a want as fatal as that of either capital or skill. The press was not indeed at that moment under a general censorship. The Licensing Act, which had been passed soon after the Restoration, had expired in 1679. Any person might therefore print, at his own risk, a history, a sermon, or a poem, without the previous approbation of any officer. But the judges were unanimously of opinion that this liberty did not extend to gazettes, and that by the common law of England no man, not authorised by the Crown, had a right to publish political news. While the Whig party was still formidable, the government thought it expedient occasionally to connive at the violation of this rule. During the great battle of the Exclusion Bill, many newspapers were suffered to appear. The Protestant intelligence, the current intelligence, the domestic intelligence, the true news, the London Mercury, none of these was published oftener than twice a week. None exceeded in size a single small leaf. The quantity of matter which one of them contained in a year was not more than is often found in two numbers of the Times. After the defeat of the Whigs, it was no longer necessary for the King to be sparing in the use of that which all his judges had pronounced to be his undoubted prerogative. At the close of his reign, no newspaper was suffered to appear without his allowance, and his allowance was given exclusively to the London Gazette. The London Gazette came out only on Mondays and Thursdays. The contents, generally, were a royal proclamation, two or three Tory addresses, notices of two or three promotions, an account of a skirmish between the imperial troops and the janissaries on the Danube, a description of a highwayman, an announcement of a grand cock-fight between two persons of honour, and an advertisement offering a reward for a strayed dog. The whole made up two pages of moderate size. Whatever was communicated respecting matters of the highest moment was communicated in the most meagre and formal style. Sometimes, indeed, when the government was disposed to gratify the public curiosity respecting an important transaction, a broadside was put forth giving fuller details than could be found in the Gazette. 
but neither the Gazette, nor any supplementary broadside printed by authority, ever contained any intelligence which it did not suit the purposes of the court to publish. The most important parliamentary debates, the most important state trials recorded in our history, were passed over in profound silence. In the capital, the coffee-houses supplied in some measure the place of a journal. Thither the Londoners flocked, as the Athenians of old flocked to the market-place, to hear whether there was any news. There men might learn how brutally a Whig had been treated the day before in Westminster Hall, what horrible accounts the letters from Edinburgh gave of the torturing of Covenanters, how grossly the Navy Board had cheated the Crown in the victualling of the fleet, and what grave charges the Lord Privy Seal had brought against the Treasury in the matter of hearth-money. But people who lived at a distance from the great theatre of political contention could be kept regularly informed of what was passing there only by means of newsletters. To prepare such letters became a calling in London, as it now is among the natives of India. The newswriter rambled from coffee-room to coffee-room, collecting reports, squeezed himself into the sessions house at the Old Bailey if there was an interesting trial, nay perhaps obtained admission to the gallery of Whitehall, and noticed how the King and Duke looked. In this way he gathered materials for weekly epistles, designed to enlighten some county town or some bench of rustic magistrates. Such were the sources from which the inhabitants of the largest provincial cities and the great body of the gentry and clergy learned almost all that they knew of the history of their own time. We must suppose that at Cambridge there were as many persons curious to know what was passing in the world as at almost any place in the kingdom out of London. Yet at Cambridge, during a great part of the reign of Charles the Second, the doctors of laws and the masters of arts had no regular supply of news except through the London Gazette. At length the services of one of the collectors of intelligence in the capital were employed. That was a memorable day on which the first newsletter from London was laid on the table of the only coffee-room in Cambridge. At the seat of a man of fortune in the country, the newsletter was impatiently expected. Within a week after it had arrived, it had been thumbed by twenty families. It furnished the neighbouring squires with matter for talk over their October, and the neighbouring rectors with topics for sharp sermons against whiggery or popery. Many of these curious journals might doubtless still be detected by a diligent search in the archives of old families. Some are to be found in our public libraries, and one series, which is not the least valuable part of the literary treasures collected by Sir James Mackintosh, will be occasionally quoted in the course of this work. It is scarcely necessary to say that there were then no provincial newspapers. Indeed, except in the capital and at two universities, there was scarcely a printer in the kingdom. The only press in England north of Trent appears to have been at York. It was not only by means of the London Gazette that the government undertook to furnish political instruction to the people. That journal contained a scanty supply of news without comment. Another journal, published under the patronage of the court, consisted of comment without news. This paper, called The Observator, was edited by an old Tory pamphleteer named Roger Lestrange. Lestrange was by no means deficient in readiness and shrewdness, and his diction, 
though coarse and disfigured by a mean and flippant jargon, which then passed for wit in the green-room and the tavern, was not without keenness and vigour. But his nature, at once ferocious and ignoble, showed itself in every line that he penned. When the first observators appeared, there was some excuse for his acrimony. The Whigs were then powerful, and he had to contend against numerous adversaries, whose unscrupulous violence might seem to justify unsparing retaliation. But in 1685 all the opposition had been crushed. A generous spirit would have disdained to insult a party which could not reply and to aggravate the misery of prisoners, of exiles, of bereaved families, but, from the malice of Lestrange, the grave was no hiding-place, and the house of mourning no sanctuary. In the last month of the reign of Charles the Second, William Jenkin, an aged dissenting pastor of great note, who had been cruelly persecuted for no crime but that of worshipping God, according to the fashion generally followed throughout Protestant Europe, died of hardships and privations at Newgate. The outbreak of popular sympathy could not be repressed. The corpse was followed to the grave by a train of a hundred and fifty coaches. Even courtiers looked sad. Even the unthinking king showed some signs of concern. Lestrange, alone, set up a howl of savage exultation, laughed at the weak compassion of the trimmers, proclaimed that the blasphemous old impostor had met with the most righteous punishment, and vowed to wage war not only to the death, but after death, with all the mock saints and martyrs. Such was the spirit of the paper, which was at this time the oracle of the Tory party, and especially of the parochial clergy. Literature, which could be carried by the post-bag, then formed the greater part of the intellectual nutriment ruminated by the country divines and the country justices. The difficulty and expense of conveying large packets from place to place was so great that an extensive work was longer in making its way from Paternoster Row to Devonshire or Lancashire than it is now in reaching Kentucky. How scantily a rural parsonage was then furnished, even with books, the most necessary to a theologian, has already been remarked. The houses of the gentry were not more plentifully supplied. Few knights of the shire had libraries so good as may now perpetually be found in a servant's hall, or in the back parlour of a small shopkeeper. A squire passed among his neighbours for great scholar, if Hudibras, and Baker's Chronicle, Talson's Jests, and the Seven Champions of Christendom lay in his hall window, among the fishing-rods and fowling-pieces. No circulating library, no book society, then existed even in the capital. But in the capital, those students who could not afford to purchase largely had a resource. The shops of the great booksellers, near St. Paul's Churchyard, were crowded every day and all day long with readers and a known customer was often permitted to carry a volume home. In the country there was no such accommodation, and every man was under the necessity of buying whatever he wished to read. As to the lady of the manor and her daughters, their literary stores generally consisted of a prayer-book and a receipt-book, but in truth they lost little by living in rural seclusion, for even 
in the highest ranks and in those situations which afforded the greatest facilities for mental improvement the english women of that generation were decidedly worse educated than they have been at any other time since the revival of learning at an early period they had studied the masterpieces of ancient genius in the present day they seldom bestow much attention on the dead languages but they are familiar with the tongue of pascal and moliere with the tongue of dante and tasso with the tongue of goethe and schiller nor is there any purer or more graceful english than that which accomplished women now speak and write but during the latter part of the seventeenth century the culture of the female mind seems to have been almost entirely neglected if a damsel had the least smattering of literature she was regarded as a prodigy ladies highly born highly bred and naturally quick-witted were unable to write a line in their mother tongue without solecisms and faults of spelling such as a charity girl would now be ashamed to commit the explanation may easily be found extravagant licentiousness the natural effect of extravagant austerity was now the mode and licentiousness had produced its ordinary effect the moral and intellectual degradation of women to their personal beauty it was the fashion to pay rude and impudent homage but the admiration and desire which they inspired were seldom mingled with respect with affection or with any chivalrous sentiment the qualities which fit them to be companions advisers confidential friends rather repelled than attracted the libertines of whitehall in that court a maid of honour who dressed in such a manner as to do full justice to a white bosom who ogled significantly who danced voluptuously who excelled in pert repartee who was not ashamed to romp with lords of the bedchamber and captains of the guards to sing sly verses with sly expression or to put on a page's dress for a frolic was more likely to be followed and admired more likely to be honoured with royal attentions more likely to win a rich and noble husband than jane grey or lucy hutchinson would have been in such circumstances the standard of female attainments was necessarily low and it was more dangerous to be above that standard than to be beneath it extreme ignorance and frivolity were thought less unbecoming in a lady than the slightest tincture of pedantry of the two celebrated women whose faces we still admire on the walls of hampton court few indeed were in the habit of reading anything more valuable than acrostics, lampoons, and translations of the Clelia and the Grand Cyrus. The literary acquirements, even of the accomplished gentlemen of that generation, seem to have been somewhat less solid and profound than at an earlier or later period. Greek learning, at least, did not flourish among us in the days of Charles the Second, as it had flourished before the Civil War or as it again flourished long after the revolution there were undoubtedly scholars to whom the whole greek literature from homer to photius was familiar but such scholars were to be found almost exclusively among the clergy resident at the universities and even at the universities were few and were not fully appreciated at cambridge it was not thought by any means necessary that a divine should be able to read the gospels in the original nor was the standard at Oxford higher. 
When, in the reign of William the Third, Christchurch rose up as one man to defend the genuineness of the epistles of Philaris, that great college, then considered as the first seat of philology in the kingdom, could not muster such a stock of Attic learning as is now possessed by several youths at every great public school. It may easily be supposed that a dead language, neglected at the universities, was not much studied by men of the world. In a former age, the poetry and eloquence of Greece had been the delight of Raleigh and Falkland. In a later age, the poetry and eloquence of Greece were the delight of Pitt and Fox, of Wyndham and Grenville. But during the latter part of the seventeenth century, there was in England scarcely one eminent statesman who could read with enjoyment a page of Sophocles or Plato. Good Latin scholars were numerous. The language of Rome, indeed, had not altogether lost its imperial prerogatives, and was still in many parts of Europe almost indispensable to a traveller or a negotiator. To speak it well was therefore a much more common accomplishment than in our time and neither Oxford nor Cambridge wanted poets, who, on a great occasion, could lay at the foot of the throne happy imitations of the verses in which Virgil and Ovid had celebrated the greatness of Augustus. Yet even the Latin was giving way to a younger rival. France united at that time almost every species of ascendancy. Her military glory was at the height. She had vanquished mighty coalitions. She had dictated treaties. She had subjugated great cities and provinces. She had forced the Castilian pride to yield her the precedence. She had summoned Italian princes to prostrate themselves at her footstool. Her authority was supreme in all matters of good breeding, from a jewel to a minuet. She determined how a gentleman's coat must be cut, how long his peruke must be, whether his heels must be high or low, and whether the lace on his hat must be broad or narrow. In literature she gave law to the world. The fame of her great writers filled Europe. No other country could produce a tragic poet equal to Racine, a comic poet equal to Moliere, a trifler so agreeable as La Fontaine a rhetorician so skilful as Boswell, The literary glory of Italy and of Spain had set. That of Germany had not yet dawned. The genius, therefore, of the eminent men who adorned Paris shone forth with a splendour which was set off to full advantage by contrast. France, indeed, had at that time an empire over mankind, such as even the Roman Republic never attained. For when Rome was politically dominant, she was in arts and letters the humble pupil of Greece. France had, over the surrounding countries, at once the ascendancy which Rome had over Greece, and the ascendancy which Greece had over Rome. French was fast becoming the universal language, the language of fashionable society, the language of diplomacy. At several courts, princes and nobles spoke it more accurately and politely, than their mother tongue. In our island there was less of this civility than on the continent. Neither our good nor our bad qualities were those of imitators. Yet even here homage was paid, awkwardly indeed and sullenly, to the literary supremacy of our neighbours. The melodious Tuscan, so familiar to the gallants and ladies of the court of Elizabeth, 
sank into contempt. A gentleman who quoted Horace or Terence was considered in good company as a pompous pedant. But to garnish his conversation with scraps of French was the best proof which could give of his parts and attainments. New canons of criticism, new models of style, came into fashion. The quaint ingenuity which had deformed the verses of Don, and had been a blemish on those of Cowley, disappeared from our poetry. Our prose became less majestic, less artfully involved, less variously musical than that of an earlier age, but more lucid, more easy, and better fitted for controversy and narrative. In these changes it is impossible not to recognise the influence of French precept and of French example. Great masters of our language, in their most dignified compositions, affected to use French words, when English words, quite as expressive and sonorous, were at hand. And from France was imported the tragedy in rhyme, an exotic which in our soil drooped and speedily died. It would have been well if our writers had also copied the decorum which their great French contemporaries, with few exceptions, preserved, for the profligacy of the English plays, satires, songs, and novels of that age is a deep blot on our national fame. The evil may easily be traced to its source. The wits and the Puritans had never been on friendly terms. There was no sympathy between the two classes. They looked on the whole system of human life from different points and in different lights. The earnest of each was the jest of the other. The pleasures of each were the torments of the other. To the stern precision in the innocent sport of the fancy seemed a crime. To light and festive natures the solemnity of the zealous brethren furnished copious matter of ridicule. From the Reformation to the Civil War, almost every writer, gifted with a fine sense of the ludicrous, had taken some opportunity of assailing the straight-haired, snuffling, whining saints, who christened their children out of the book of Nehemiah, who groaned in spirit at the sight of Jack in the Green, and who thought it impious to taste plum porridge on Christmas Day. At length a time came, when the laughers began to look grave in their turn, the rigid and gainly zealots, after having furnished much good sport during two generations, rose up in arms, conquered, ruled, and grimly smiling, trod down under their feet the whole crowd of mockers. The wounds inflicted by gay and petulant malice were retaliated with the gloomy and implacable malice peculiar to bigots, who mistake their own rancour for virtue. The theatres were closed, the players were flogged. The press was put under the guardianship of austere licences. The muses were banished from their own favourite haunts. Cambridge and Oxford, Cowley, Crashaw, and Cleveland were ejected from their fellowships. The young candidate for academical honours was no longer required to write Ovidian epistles or Virgilian pastorals, but was strictly interrogated by a synod of lowering supralapsarians, as to the day and hour when he experienced the new birth. Such a system was of course fruitful of hypocrites. Under sober clothing, and under visages composed to the expression of austerity, lay hid during several years the intense desire of license and of revenge. At length that desire 
was gratified. The restoration emancipated thousands of minds from a yoke which had become insupportable. The old fight recommenced, but with an animosity altogether new. It was now not a sportive combat, but a war to the death. The roundhead had no better quarter to expect from those whom he had persecuted than a cruel slave-driver can expect from insurgent slaves, still bearing the marks of his collars and his scourges. End of Part 12